This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. We're talking about deep water. Deep waters is the theme that I chose to use as my series, talking about worship. Now, worship is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit moving in us, and how we worship and Worship at City Bible Church is a big deal. We've been worshiping for a very long time. Worship is a big part of our service. On all the campuses and online people today, you watched us worship. You watched how we are passionate about it with the clapping, lifting of hands, and maybe doing some things that's uh, not even familiar to you, are new to you, are uncomfortable. It's totally okay. I remember those days in my life. It's totally all right. But what I'm trying to do is simply move the church together as one body of people into a little deeper water of worship. Water in the Bible, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Many places as the Holy Spirit's likened to wells and rivers and rain coming down and the water of the Holy Spirit flowing out from us. And even the book of Revelation ends with the uh, pure river of God, you know, talking about where we end. And that river, there's healing. And that river, there's all these things. Well, that's what goes on with worship. Worship has something to do with the river of God. It refreshes, refines, cleanses, washes. It's a a beautiful metaphor, and it's one that we use. So I've been talking about wading into the water, going past your ankles and your knees and your waist and waters to swim in, which simply means wherever you are, you're going a little further. Wherever you are, you're moving a little deeper. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter your background. We're all together. We're just trying to learn to love Jesus, love God, be in the presence of the Lord, learn how to worship with passion, give Jesus all of our heart. That's what City Bible Church is all about, just giving him your life the best way you can. And so I'm trying to help us do it together. So going deeper, my first slide reads like this, I will push past. Now all of us have to do this every time we come to devotions or corporate service. I got to push past what? personal hindrances. I have a bunch of them. You have a bunch of them. Thought life. It could be discouragement, circumstance, whatever it might be. Hindrances that come against you that cause you not to pray, that cause you to not open your Bible, that cause you to come into a church service and feel nothing and do nothing. Just sit there because you can't press in. You have hindrances. There's stuff on your mind. It's your family. It's your health. It's your finance. It's tomorrow. It's a bill that's due. You don't have money for The car's broke. Something happened in the house and you got vacation, but no money to go on vacation, trying to figure out what to do. So you have stuff that you think about all the time. When you come to church, life doesn't stop. People still have a mind, they have emotions, they have a life. And so when you come to church, sometimes it might be the middle of the worship service before you actually kind of tune in and say, oh yeah, we're singing about great God. We're singing about how God blesses people. We're singing about how God picks us up when we fall. We're singing about grace. And then maybe some of that gets into you and you start thinking about grace or the greatness of God or something how uh, God might want to help you today or bring healing to your life. And maybe you open your heart a little bit more. Well, that's all about deep waters, how you open your heart to God. God is no respecter of persons. He is a respecter of principle. And so as you hunger after the Lord, the Lord meets you. And so as you open your heart, things begin to happen. I push past my hindrances. My distractions, well, 21st century, there's a billion of them. And I wait into the deep waters of God's presence with my praise and worship and an open heart, open heart, an open heart of expectation. 
expecting God to do something? Did you come into the services today expecting something different, expecting God to encounter, embrace, move upon, do something in your life? Did you expect anything? Because worship begins with that kind of a heart. I do expect something to happen in my life today. We've gone through several messages. I will go deeper. I will thirst. I will worship the Father. I will lift my hands. I will sing praises. All of those speak about the message titles I've already gone through. It's your decision. It's your decision to actually push out into the deep. No one can make you do it. It's your decision to thirst. Nobody can make you thirsty for God. Nobody. It is an individual heart attitude that thirst after God. If you're married to a person who's passionate for God, it doesn't mean you're passionate for God. If you go to a church that is absolutely passionate for God, it doesn't mean you're passionate for God. You can be around the Holy Spirit your whole life and never be touched by the Holy Spirit. I was that person. I know that can happen. Thirsty for God means you drink, you open, you go to the river, you cry out to the Lord. You do something different with your life. You have to have a thirsty soul. You know, prayer is an amazing thing. When you pray, you want to pray more. And when you pray more, you want to pray more. Worship's a funny thing, too. The more you worship, the more you like it. Like bike riding, since I got into it. You know, it's amazing. I just kicked myself. I should have done it so much sooner. But the more you bike, the more you like it. Every time I sit at my desk and I'm working and I think, okay, I need to go do my bike. You know, for me, that's a 20 to 30 mile ride and it's going to take me two to three hours. I got to cut it out. I got to do it. I got to make time. And there's some days that I just do not feel like getting on that bike. I'm already tired. I already have a headache. I already don't want to go out there. I already know what's in front of me pushing up that hill and down. But you know, there's something about as soon as you get on the bike and the fresh wind starts hitting you and your heart starts pumping, you forget about the headache, you forget about the tiredness. I come back full of strength and vigor and revived and I think to myself, remember Frank, it's not how you start the ride how you feel, it's how you end the ride. It's reviving, it's refreshing, it's doing something to you. So don't ever talk yourself out of it. I want to tell you right now, you can talk yourself out a meeting with God because of your circumstance and your attitude and your problem, and you just cancel yourself out. I want you to not cancel yourself out. I want you to be a thirsty soul. I want you to hunger after God. I want you to pull yourself up and say, you know what? I can meet with the Lord. The Lord can meet with me, and my life can change. My circumstance can change. And you know what? No matter what I feel like right now, I don't have to feel this way tomorrow. I can change this. And so it is. You can change your life when you hunger and you thirst. I'll sing my praise. I'll lift my hands. I hope you get the message on lifting of hands and singing praise because it's so important. Singing praise is just two basic categories. One is the choruses you sing, and the choruses you sing are written in the presence of God with people that know the Holy Spirit and Jesus, and they write great songs like we sang today. When I sing those choruses, I identify with the words. I sing with my heart. Sometimes I don't sing their words. I kind of pray in my own language and, and I pray in the spirit and I'm singing half the song and I'm into it. I want to meet with God. I'm crying out to the Lord. Lord, I need your grace today, oh God. And if I don't need grace today, I'm praying for a lot of people who need grace today. So I'm thinking about people I'm counseling or people in my family or people outside my family or people that I met or whatever. I'm praying for them. Oh God, let grace come on them and let, let 
strength come on them and let something happen in their world today. As I sing the choruses, I encounter the words. I, I sing from my heart. I don't just go through the mechanics of a religious service and clap, kind of lift one hand or don't lift anything or don't even sing a word. You're not encountering anything if you don't get your heart involved with the worship itself. And you can do that by really thinking about the words you're singing and singing them with passion. And then there comes a time to sing your own song. And that's a very important thing too, to sing your own praise. And we talked about that. All right. I will love the presence of God. We're going to talk about the presence of God. Why? You can't separate worship from the presence of God. You cannot separate it. Believe it or not, you should believe it because I'm going to tell you the truth. Believe it or not, I can remember the, remember the first time ever I felt the presence of God. First time. I was 17. I had never felt the presence of God in my whole life. Hard to believe, isn't it? Raised in church. I don't know if Sunday school buttons look like a four-star general. I've been to enough vacation Bible schools to supply every kid in the block, sometimes three or four every summer. I've been to church every Sunday. My dad's a pastor. I went to youth camps. I went to that camp, vacation Bible school, Sunday school, memorize scripture, go through Sunday school lessons. I did all that my whole life. But I never, ever felt the presence of God. Hard to believe, but I'm telling you the truth. I didn't. Wasn't until I was 17 in a specific place at a specific time with a specific need in my life where the presence of God invaded me. It was a shocking experience. It was so real. It was so powerful. It was so transforming for this young man. And I can remember the question that came to my mind. I can remember it like yesterday. It came right to my mind. This was the question. Why didn't anyone tell me about this? That was my question. Immediate. Why didn't anyone tell me about this? I thought it was all about the buttons and the school and the, you know, the church thing and, you know, just not going to hell and, and making a confession and understanding the gospel, which I did. I understood the gospel, but I had never, ever felt the presence of God. When that presence came on my life, I was marked. There's no turning back. There was a hunger and a passion that opened up in me. There was a curiosity. There was, a, there was something in me that began to reach out to God that I never knew before. I never knew before. I never knew the passion that you could have for God. I never knew that there could be a thing called the fire of the Holy Spirit where you would just long to be touched by God and want to press into that presence. Well, that was the beginning for me, the presence of God. Presence of God can be defined in three levels or three ways. You'll, you'll hear the first one. It's called omni, omnipresence. We use that term. People would understand it. The omnipresence of God means God's everywhere. There's nowhere where God is not. Psalms 139 says, if you make your bed in hell, God's there. The Bible says you go to the deepest water, he's there. Highest mountain, he's there. You go to the stars, you go. The Bible talks about all this stuff in the book of Job and the Psalms, and it simply says you cannot go anywhere where God is not. He fills the universe. He is not a rock. He is not a tree, but there's no rock or tree that does not feel his presence. He fills the universe. He is everywhere 
all the time. He is right now in the bar where the guys are drinking or he's at the football game or the basketball game or he's at the soccer game today. He's everywhere. Now, those people don't stop and say, oh, I feel God today. I feel God today. It's not that they recognize his presence, but his presence is there. The whole world could feel it, but the whole world doesn't feel it. The second level is the manifest presence of God. The manifest presence of God is where God actually manifests, expresses, shows up, and people do feel something. In revival times, there's times where you can actually go into a town and feel the presence of God in a town or in a room or in a prayer and fasting time or in a prayer meeting or at youth camp. I've watched kids melt at the altar for the first time where in that some, some kind of atmosphere of almost like Holy Spirit congestion. It's just so compacted. Everything's going on and there's no distraction and there's services morning, noon, and night and, and prayer and a lot of preparation. And as the kids get into it, about the second day, the presence of God starts attacking them in a very good way. And before you know it, they're melting at the altar and these kids are crying all over. You can't talk kids into crying. You can't, you can't threaten them into it. You can't try to, you know, fake it. You can't do, it just is. And so when those kids begin to respond to God, I love to watch it because they just start crying and they'll get into the presence of the Lord. You can't stop them. They'll worship for an hour. They'll worship for two hours. They'll stay at the altar 45 minutes after service. They'll go back to the dorms and read the Bible some more. Why? Because the presence of God is real. It manifests itself. It changes your life. It touches your spirit and your soul and your body. It touches your emotions. It touches something inside of you and you feel it. Manifest the presence of God. Revival books talk about cities that were so filled with God. With Charles Finney, when he was preaching, he said, the whole city's filled with God. People are getting saved when no one's talking to them. People are coming to someone's house, knocking on the door, saying, I don't know what to do, but I, I feel like I'm a sinner, and I, I've never felt this way. What do I do? How do I, how do I get right with God? And people would lead people to Christ just because there was a manifested conviction and presence to God. It talks about the ships coming in to the harbors, and about a half mile out, all the crew would fall on their knee, call upon the name of Jesus, people getting saved and delivered. And by the time they got into port, they'd meet their family and they would be weeping and saying, God met us out there. And every ship that came within that zone was attacked by the Holy Spirit. God can show up in a place. I would like God to show up in America somewhere. And I would like God to show up with a spirit of repentance and change and transformation. By the way, God can show up. Manifested presence of God. Then there's this felt personal presence of God. The felt personalized presence of God is what I was talking about with myself and other people. When God visits a person. When God visits an individual at salvation, that should happen. Water baptism, it can happen. At other times in your life, sometimes it's out of a crisis, not out of a good time, where God visits you. Where you look back and say, that marked my life. I was marked. I've been marked. I've been marked in crisis. I've been marked in good times, but I've been marked. I know that God can visit me, and I know without him, I can't get through this storm. He's the cornerstone. Through it all, through the storm, he's the one that comes to lift you up when you fall. There's a manifested presence that personalizes itself upon your life, and you end up drinking that in. I wouldn't want you to live your life and not have that. It's not how 
please, I'm a pastor, but not how faithful you are just to a service. Although I want you to be in church, so does Jesus. But I lived long enough and I lived in that long enough to know that is not enough. You won't stay with it. I didn't stay with it. If it's church and that's it, and you just don't want to go to hell and you know what's right and it's a moral thing to do and so you go to church. It'll keep you for a while. But really what keeps you forever is a hunger and an encounter with a living God that changes your life where you drink it into your soul and into your spirit. It becomes your daily bread. It becomes something that's so real to you. It's more real than the natural food you eat. It is the living presence of God. Can I hear an Amen. That living presence comes to change our life. First Chronicles 16, 27, Amplified Bible says, honor and majesty are found in his presence. Yes, yes. Strength and joy are found in his sanctuary if his presence is there. The building doesn't house that. It's his presence. Psalm 1611, you will show me the path. Now notice this, there is a path, there's a way, there's a gate. In the Bible, I could go off for an hour just on gates and paths on the Bible. It's very real. And there's a path that leads you somewhere. This one says it leads you to life. How? Your presence fills me with joy, brings me pleasure forever. Where's the path lead to your presence? Where's the path taking you right now? To his pleasures, to, to his place. To his presence. Now I want you to turn in your Bible. Keep your finger there. 2 Samuel 6. Old Testament. Get through the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible. Move ahead past Judges. Get to First and 2 Samuel. First and 2 Chronicles. Right in there. The historical books. Find 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll get there in a moment. But before I read the scripture, remember, we're talking about, and everyone say the word presence. presence. One more time. Presence. presence. Now say, presence of God. Presence of God. presence of God. Always been here. Nothing new about it. Nothing new about the doctrine of the presence. From the book of Genesis where the angels and the swords with the garden would not let them go back in after the sin. There was a living presence that they could feel God walk in the garden. It started this way, folks. The presence of God has always been right through the Bible. When God met with man, I'm going to give you a frame for 2 Samuel 6, but it will take me a couple minutes. When God met with man in the Old Testament to begin with, he met with every person on an altar. They built an altar, called in the name of the Lord, made an animal sacrifice. God would show up and God would speak to them. Sometimes his presence would overwhelm them so much so that in Genesis 28, Jacob is the one who wakes up and says, how awesome in this place. God was in this place. God showed up here. This is amazing. Well, God was in that place. He manifested himself to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. And Jacob could say, God met with me. Individual, he built an altar poured oil on the stones. Why? Because God was meeting with them right through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right through. It was altar, 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 altar. People individually meeting with God. And then there came a man called Moses. Moses is the first person to build a house. He doesn't just build an altar. He builds a house called the Tabernacle of Moses. 
In this tabernacle, in Exodus 25, God gives him all the instructions specifically. He says, Moses, by the way, if you make a mistake, I'll kill you. You follow this exactly to the plan. The pattern cannot be messed with. You follow it. Right down to the, the brass sockets on the ground, to the silver sockets on top, to the string you use to get the linen around it, to every bit of the altars, what you're going to build, the badger skin you cover, everything you use, I want you to do it exactly the way I tell you. Moses, I got it. The book of Hebrews is the book that explains the book of Exodus. If you want to read about the tabernacle, New Testament, you go to the book of Hebrews, it'll tell you. So Moses builds the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is in three compartments. If I'm coming to the tabernacle, I come through the gate into the outer court, and there's two pieces of furniture, a brazen altar and a brazen labor. One for the blood, sacrifice. One for the water, cleansing the animal sacrifice. Also the priest, washing the laver was a place of water. So you have the blood and water. Sounds like John 3, it is. It is prophetic and predicting what would happen in Christ and in the church. You have to have the blood and the water to approach. Then you would come to the first opening. You would open the curtain and you would step into what was called the holy place. And the holy place, there was no light except for three pieces of furniture. One was the candlestick, the only light in this place. Table of showbread, 12 loaves, one for each tribe. And then the altar of incense, the highest piece, the highest piece of furniture was the prayer altar, the altar of incense. So when you stepped into the holy place, you had the candlestick, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, the oil, the books of the Bible, 66 knobs and all this stuff. All the symbolism is in there. Then you have the table of showbread, the communion. The, it's actually called the bread of his presence. And then you come to the altar of incense, which Revelation chapter 8 interprets for us as being the prayers of the saints that ascend to God. But there has to be fire for prayer to ascend. There has to be some kind of a passion. There has to be some way to ignite the prayers. And that was... The incense, and that's what it was symbolic of. So those three pieces are New Testament church. We all understand Holy Spirit, communion, the altar of prayer, you know, the books of the Bible. We come in, we're transformed. And then there was one other compartment, the most holy place. You pull back, and when you stepped in, it's only a 10 by 10 room. It was the Ark of the Covenant, not Noah's Ark, a little box, an Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was made with two angels and their wings looking at the mercy seats. And if you open the mercy seat, there were some things in the Ark of the Covenant that were symbolic of their journey and what God was going to do with them, including the broken law and the rod and the manna. All the stuff that's in this is symbolic of what God had done with them as they looked at the mercy seat, opened up, that's what was there. The whole Ark is symbolic, but this is what it's called. The Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of His presence. So when the priest went into the most holy place, he would encounter the presence of God. And this is what the ark was. The ark was the ark of covenant, relationship. It was the ark of glory, manifested attributes of God in a place that shows you the very character of God. It was the ark of his voice, because after blood stained mercy seat, he would speak to the priest. It was the ark of reconciliation. They would reconcile the whole nation in one day. It was the ark of favor, and God would speak to them. And that's where you get Numbers chapter 6, the prayer about the favor of God over the nation came out of that room where God would say, I will bless you, and I will favor you, and this is what's going to happen. So the ark of the covenant 
was an ark that symbolized the throne of God, the presence of God, the voice of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the favor of God, the protection of God, so much so that when they were in a battle, they would take the ark with them, and when any of the enemies saw the ark, they would uh, know their defeat was uh, going to happen because the ark was the power of God in motion. And so that's the ark of the covenant. So this is what happens. Under Eli, the fat priest who was a backslidden man of God, and his two sons that slept with the women at the gate of the tabernacle, horrible leaders. The nation is wrecked with sin. It's wrecked with immorality. It's wrecked with all kinds of stuff. But they still have the tabernacle, and God judged the whole thing. It's a whole story in itself. And the Philistines, because they had the ark out there fighting against the Philistines, the Philistines slaughtered the Israelites, stole the ark for the first time in the history of Israel. When they stole the ark, they thought they really could have the same power. It's the interesting parallel of I could go off on so much of this. They thought they could have the same power because they had the same religious box. But there's no power in the box unless there's power in the heart. And so even though they had the box, there's no covenant. There's no way for God to respond to them. And so they took it first to Ashdod. They set it up in front of their God. But God judged the whole city. Thousands of people died. Their God fell on his face, broke his neck, and you know, the statue. And so they were afraid. So they sent the ark to another Philistine city called Gath. city got destroyed. Gath sent it to Ekron and said, we don't know what to do. Ekron got destroyed. Ekron finally catches on and said, we're sending it back to Israel. They put it on a new cart with oxen, no driver. Sovereignly, the cart would make it back. And this was their plan. And this was their, you know, if, if there is a God in heaven, he will lead this cart and there will be no judgment on us. And that's what happens. The men in Beth Shemesh who are working in the field, they're Israelites. They see the ark coming down the road on the cart and they start rejoicing the ark is coming home, but they make a mistake. They open the ark up, and in a few seconds, 50,000 men die. 50,000. God has an attitude about his presence. God has an attitude about his covenant. God has an attitude about some of this stuff. Even though it's symbolic in Old Testament history and all this, it means something, and you, you should understand that. Well, the Beshemites said, we don't know what to do with this. They sent it to Kirjath-Jerim, which is the home of the people that really knew they were Levite roots. They knew what to do with the ark, and sure enough, they did. And that, Now, listen carefully. The men at Kirjath-Jerim took the ark, and they took it over to a house. Abinadab was his name. Abinadab is a son of Saul. Saul was Israelite, and Saul was Levite. Saul had roots into this stuff, but he didn't obey it. He didn't follow through. He ended up worship, worshiping a witch, and he backslid totally. And his son, Abinadab, who must have been a pretty good guy, they trusted him, and the ark was put in his house for 20 years. During the 20-year time period, 13 years into it, Saul is killed in battle, and Abinadab is killed with him because he's one of Saul's sons. Now, for seven years, Eliezer is the only one over the ark at the house of Abinadab. Bear with me, I'm getting somewhere. And David, at Mark 13, the 13th year, Saul kills. David takes over. But for seven years, David doesn't have a unified Israel. He has two houses. So he rules in Hebron for seven years. He doesn't go directly to Jerusalem because they don't recognize him as king in Jerusalem. 
For seven years, he trains and he tries to get a foothold in with the whole nation, doesn't work. So finally, he just goes up and takes Jerusalem. When he takes Jerusalem, he establishes his kingdom. At, for the first time now, he's seven years into his reign. He puts himself in Jerusalem. He has the house of David there. And at that point, this is 20 years in, he says, I'm going to get the ark. 20 years. It's been down there. Seven years, David's had no worship, no prayer, no psalm writing, by the way. No psalm writing to this point. No harp playing around the castle. David's had seven years with nothing going on in his kingdom except warfare. So he says, I'm going to get the ark. Now he goes down to the house of Abinadab. 30,000 men with him. Priests dancer, tambourine, noise. They put the ark on a new cart just like it got to Abinadab's house. They're dancing their way back to Jerusalem about a 20-mile trip. And as they're dancing the way, the cart hits a bump. Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, puts his hand on the ark of the covenant before it falls off the cart and God kills him on the spot. And David gets so discouraged. He says, who can handle the presence of God? Who can do this? This is so bad. God, why did you do this? It's called the breach of us. I'm going to name this place. And David's frustrated. He doesn't know what to do. I say all of that to get you to my text. Second Samuel 6, verse 10. David had now gone back for three months, he is now back in Jerusalem trying to figure out what to do. And it's all in the law. It's all written out what he was supposed to do. He just did it all wrong. And when he got the priest to figure it out, he came back. Now, follow with me. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says that David would not move the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Are you there? 2 Samuel 6.10. Took it aside. Took it aside. Took it aside. To the house of Obadidim. Now, my message, which I don't think I could do justice without what I just did for you to understand how important the ark is, how dangerous the ark is, how much God protects his name and his presence, how, how this was a living example of how you should bear. It was never supposed to be put on an old cart. The way to carry the ark of the covenant was the priest had to put staves through the golden circles at four corners of the ark, put it on their shoulder, and they would have to carry the ark. And that was symbolic of what would happen to every person who accepts Christ. You're an ark carrier. You're a presence barrier. It's supposed to be on your life. It's not something that's some religious act. You are to carry the presence of God with respect and with honor because God honors his presence. Can someone say a big amen? amen? You are a carrier. Well, he took it aside. Can you imagine? Can you? I, I just sat there in my office trying to imagine this. 30,000 soldiers, the king, the ark, although the ark's on the cart when he comes to Obed-Edom's house. He knocks on the door. Obed-Edom answered the door. Whoa. Uh, uh, 30,000 soldiers, the Ark of the Covenant, the king. Oh, what, what's going on? David says, I can't explain everything, but I'm just going to ask you to keep the Ark in your house. Well, remember, everybody that's done this is dead. Cities are destroyed. There's nothing in you that would say, I'm a happy camper now. 
This would be a fearful act unless, unless, unless there was something in Obedidim that understood the presence of God. My message is entitled, Obedidim, a presence lover. So he says to David, bring it in. David says, well, thank you very much. I'll be back to you. Don't know how long. He said, doesn't matter. Bring it in. For three months, for three months, he had something no one else has ever had for three months. The priest only had it one day, one hour out of 52 weeks, 365 days. Nobody has ever sat in the presence of God 24-7. No one. No one. No one has ever had the ark in their home and had a place where they could just sit in the presence of the Lord because it was a dynamic presence, a sovereign presence, a powerful presence. We know that from what happens from this point on. But Obedidim, Obedidim, unnamed, unpublic, a nobody, off the beaten path, living in a little town, living with a no man's life, living with no future in a sense, that nothing big is going to happen. Yet in that nothing town, in that nothing man, in that nothing future, God showed up with his presence and turned everything around. Can I hear an amen? amen. I want you to be an Obedidim. I want you to be an Obedidim. When the presence of God comes to your life, here's what will happen. Number one, surprising new opportunities will unfold for you. And God turned aside. I, I just felt so strong to say to you, God wants to turn aside a detour to you. Even though you think God is heading this way or should go visit that person or that could happen for them and, and this is what could happen for that wonderful person over there and, you know, they deserve it. Me, I'm just a nobody. I'm just out here in this little town. I don't deserve any of this stuff. I'm just a kind of a no-name person. I, I just kind of get along in life. I just want to say to you that God is turning aside, desiring to turn aside a supernatural detour and land in your house and your life and do something surprising for you that no one else can do because he loves the obscure people and the obscure places and God is on his way to your house. You've got to believe that God can turn aside. He turned aside. Obed wasn't expecting this detour. He wasn't expecting this surprise. It reminds me of Genesis 45 when Jacob thought Joseph was dead, or Isaac. And when they came and finally told the father, you know, your, your son's not dead. What? He's been dead for years. No, he's not dead. The father almost has a heart attack. Then they said, it's even better than that. He's He's more than life. He's prime minister of Egypt. Dad, he's, you can't believe what God has done. It's so mind-boggling. And it says that Jacob was stunned. In the Hebrew, it means his heart stopped. The surprise 
surpassed any news he thought he would ever hear about that man, Joseph. It was over. The dream is dead. The promise is dead. I will never see him again. I could never even dream of good news of that person. So the good news that came to him so surpassed anything he could even expect that his heart stopped. He says, please, don't say this to me. Don't tease me. Don't, don't, don't. Don't, don't do this to me. I can't handle it. I can't handle it. I'm so disappointed. I've been grieving for years. Don't, don't do this to me. Is that a true? I, we, we, don't die on us now because Joseph, he wants you to come down. He was so stunned. Would it, would it be right for me to say to you that God wants to bring you such good news and such good things in your life that you would be stunned and it so surpasses anything you would expect for yourself that you don't even deserve it. You've already canceled yourself out, but there's a word coming to you that says, hey, there's a dream alive for you. You have a future and it surpasses anything you ever thought could ever happen to your life. Surprise, surprise. When God comes in, things change. Things change. And the news I have for you is better than anything you could expect. Well, I just wanted to get healed on this, but it, it, that's just the beginning of your healing. You're also going to get back all the insurance money and you're going to get a house for free and you're going to get a couple cars thrown in. Shandai Rama. What does that mean? That means I'm stunned. Well, I'm praying for a guy. I'm not just going to give you a guy. I'm going to give you tall, good-looking, best, and, and not only good-looking, he's going to have money. Stunned. Wow. And he's going to like everything you do. And... He can cook and clean. <laughs> He's beyond anything you thought. You thought you were just kind of, but I got something for you. Come on, people. I just want to say to you with all that's in my heart, God has a surprise for you. God wants to surprise you. He wants to do something good for you. He wants to surpass anything you expect. He wants you to get stunned. Say, wow, I'm stunned at what God did. I've been stunned a few times. I want you to get stunned. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need to get stunned. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Come on, 1 Corinthians 2.9. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It hasn't entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Take it, pray it. Your eye can't see it. Your heart can't imagine it. But God is up to something. Now, you don't have to believe my preaching. But I would suggest you try it. I would suggest you go there. I would suggest you lift your vision of what God wants to do in and through your life. He has surprises yet for you. For you. And what could that mean? Healing. I've been healed. I know what healing feels like. Surprise, surprise. I could go through all, all my surprises. There's a bunch of them. I want you to have surprises. I don't want you to have bad surprises. Well, surprise again. I thought it was going to be as bad as ever. I would like you to be able to say, the ark came to my house. I took it in. I've been loving the presence of God. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but things are working out. Something had changed in my life. When the presence of God comes in, 
surprising opportunities open up.